Welcome to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schrager. My guest today is David Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona. He has a book entitled, First, Do No Harm, Humanitarian Intervention and the Destruction of Yugoslavia, which came out in 2009. We've invited David into the studio today to talk about military intervention, especially as it manifests uh, more recently in places such as Libya and uh, looking, taking a look at it in Syria as well. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me, Amanda. Talk about the concept of first do no harm. Uh, well, it's it's become a very popular idea that the United States and uh, other Western states led by the United States can intervene in humanitarian crises um, with a kind of humanitarian or sort of altruistic motive and can actually be used to um, improve the quality of life in target countries. Um, since the end of the Cold War, many have seen this as... Um, one of the major sort of um, focal points of U.S. foreign policy, at least in terms of public rhetoric, it's been wildly influential on both sides of the political spectrum, but particularly among political liberals. A very large number of people who previously had been critical of intervention um, had um, now view intervention in a far more positive light and are critical of non-intervention. Um, this is true, um, particularly, I would say, uh, it's very, been very popular among both sexes, but especially among women, a group that had previously been much more critical of military activity but is now more enthusiastic than before. And, um, you know, I'm, I, 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 my book and my research have been very critical of this concept. I think it's a very naive idea. Um, it, I think, neglects the possibility, indeed the likelihood, that intervention often makes things worse than they were before. And if you have a humanitarian crisis, um, it, intervention can worsen the humanitarian crisis, increase the degree of human suffering, and so on. Um, people like Samantha Power, she's one of the major advocates of this idea, both as a academic and journalist and now as a U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, she, she looks at intervention as if it always has positive impacts, and the only negative impact is when we don't intervene. Uh, I think she glosses over or ignores the tremendous damage that intervention has done to many target countries. Um, much of the rhetoric and con the concept comes out of the experience of the breakup of Yugoslavia in the 1990s and the various wars that attended that breakup, the most important of which, of course, uh, were the uh, very complicated civil war in Bosnia-Herzegovina and then the war in Kosovo. Um, you know, the, the general perception of these wars is that uh, the U.S. intervened somewhat too late, but the intervention by the U.S. made things better. On the contrary, I argue, uh, they made things much worse. And I think in, in Libya, we saw another case more recently where intervention made things worse than they were before. And so I think I adopt the term first do no harm as sort of a medical term. In medicine, um, there's explicit recognition that medical action, particularly surgery, has great potential to harm the patient. And you don't take action, any kind of medical action, unless you have good reason to think it'll help the patient. And you work on the assumption that sometimes the best course of action is to do nothing. And I think that that caution would be very useful in evaluating humanitarian crises. That the first thing we should do is not make them worse than before. Uh, the problem is people rarely consider this and say we have to do something and often end up making it worse. My guest today is David Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona. So in talking about military intervention. You did a lot of research on uh, Yugoslavia. 
And uh, then more recently, we've uh, been able to witness Libya. And I'm thinking most of us probably just remember perhaps the intervention itself and really have not heard anything one way or the other about the results of that. And certainly not too much recently in the past since that intervention. All right. Well, um, you know, one example uh, from history of first do no harm or the way in which intervention actually in fact, did harm and made the situation worse was Kosovo. People remember Kosovo as uh, you know a very simple case of the Serbs acting aggressively and violently, and the Albanians, the Albanian ethnic group in Kosovo, as the victims. And the U.S. and NATO moved in and began bombing the Serbs in 1999. This solved the problem. Uh, in reality, the U.S. bombing made the situation much worse than before. In the first place, you have to recognize that the Kosovo War. Had a low was a low-level war. The total number of people killed in the war, both sides, civilian and military, before the bombing was 2,000. So it was a very small-scale war. When the bombing began, the Serbs tremendously increased their atrocities, and the total number of people killed was about, just from the Serbs, was 10,000. So there's a huge spike in Serbian uh, aggression and Serbian atrocities resulting from the bombing. The bombing made the situation far worse than before, several fold worse than it was before. Um, and, um, you know, the bombing itself probably killed more civilians than all the civilians that were killed by the Serb offensives prior to the bombing, in addition to the ones that the Serbs killed after. The, in other words, uh, the bombing had a number of negative effects. First, it caused the Serbs to engage in revenge killings that were vastly worse than anything that occurred before. Secondly, the bombing itself killed more civilians than um, all the Serb atrocities in Kosovo that preceded the bombing. Uh, then when the bombing was over, NATO allowed the Albanian ethnic group to terrorize the Serbs. Before the bombing, the Serbs were terrorizing the Albanians. Afterwards, it was the Albanians terrorizing the Serbs. And, um, you know, about a quarter of a million Serbs were ethnically cleansed, uh, maybe about... Uh, um, a thousand or close to a thousand were killed. Um, uh, this was actually smaller than the number of Ser than the number of Albanians who were ethnically cleansed by the Serbs. But nevertheless, a quarter of a million people ethnically cleansed is a lot. And all of this resulted from the bombing. And so the bombing, far from making the situation better, made it worse. Um, you know, I could go into other aspects of Kosovo, in particular the fact that uh, there was very nearly a diplomatic settlement. Uh, we, we came very close to settling the matter diplomatically, but the U.S. torpedoed the diplomatic effort because it had opted basically for a military solution because it wanted a new role for NATO. Um, and so this really looked at carefully, I think, was a very cynical operation uh, with very uh, negative results. Um, it was not at all the success people imagined it to be. And all of this is from... Um, you know, public records such as the Milosevic trial, the prosecution offered some of the most damning evidence, I would say, uh, against the uh, intervention. Um, and it's very well established and documented. Uh, Libya is another case, a more recent case that's maybe more, uh, you know, more recently on people's minds. Um, you know, things are very bad under Gaddafi. There's no doubt that Gaddafi, towards the end of his reign of power, um, became even more megalomaniacal and corrupt than he had been before. And he lost certainly much of his popular support. Uh, you know, the problem, I think, is that in overthrowing him, uh, you know, the United States basically took away the security that had existed under Gaddafi and made things worse. Libya's had sort of a low-level civil war ever since the overthrow of Gaddafi. Um, you know, you've had a very ser serious conflict between the eastern and western parts. And in general, Libya is divided into over 100 different clans, um, 
each of which or many of which have their own militias, and there's no real stable government in Libya. Uh, there was recently a survey undertaken by the National Endowment for Democracy, a kind of semi-U.S. government agency, which took a poll of Libyans and asked them, are you better off or worse off than you were under Gaddafi? Only a third said they were better off, and two-thirds either said they are worse off or no better off than they were under Gaddafi. Um, and, um, you know, we can look at uh, the larger impact of the Libya intervention, which I think was even more disastrous. Um, the opening up of the arms stores, uh, the, the vast arms stores that Gaddafi had, spread arms all over the Middle Eastern and Maghreb region with very destabilizing effects. Uh, it also uh, spread many of Gaddafi's mercenaries over the region and was a major trigger to a civil war in Mali, which required another intervention by NATO, by the way, led by France. Uh, and the Mali civil war, which occurred right after the Libya civil, civil war ended, probably never would have even occurred had it not been for the overthrow of Gaddafi. Um, there's still larger implications uh, to the Libya intervention. For example, uh, Libya in 2003 um, had cut a deal with the West whereby Gaddafi agreed to get rid of his nuclear weapons development program, uh, which was predicated at least on an understanding that the West would not overthrow him. Well, he acted apparently in good faith and did get rid of his nuclear weapons development program, but as we know, the West did overthrow him. Uh, he was overthrown and he was personally killed, actually, in a very brutal way. Um, and I'm sure countries like North Korea watched that very carefully and said uh, that, um, you know, that's another reason why we should never give up our nuclear weapons program, that you can't negotiate with the West. They'll always use it against you. Saddam Hussein gave up his nuclear weapons program, and he ended up at the end of a rope. Um, and so, you know, Libya was one of a series of events, which I think will persuade North Korea and possibly other countries that the only way to defend oneself against Western intervention is nuclear weapons. That's going to have very negative impacts for Western and world security for a very long time to come. And I think much of that, or at least some of that, is due to the overthrow of Gaddafi and the way it was done. And so I think people tend to overlook the very negative impacts these interventions can have and tend to just assume the whole thing was a very rosy and moral event when very often it's not. My guest today is David Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona. Well, one of the things I think that has been of some encouragement to me as somebody who believes that intervention uh, is a very bad idea on the whole um, is that the public, I think, has gotten very tired of it. Um, I should add the idea of humanitarian intervention appears never to have really caught fire with the general public. It was more of a thing that was popular among intellectuals, journalists, and policymakers. But in general, I think during the war on terror, the public was willing to accept a high level of intervention in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but it's very evident the public has become very tired of war and very tired of intervention. And the recent events in Syria demonstrated that very clearly, that Obama had called for a large, or at least a, a moderately large intervention in Syria through the firing of Tomahawk missiles against the Assad regime. And, um, you know, basically it was the public that prevented him from doing it. Um, you know, there were many congressmen who said they might have been willing to accept and vote for a resolution in favor of military force, but their constituents were so overwhelmingly against it, they just couldn't do it. And the public was clearly weighing in very heavily against this in, this proposed intervention. And, um, you know, there was a saying in the 60s, what if they gave a war and no one came? That's essentially what happened in Syria. Obama proposed a war and no one came. And I think it's going to set a very important precedent, which will make it very difficult for presidents in the future to undertake intervention. Um, because, again, they, the, the public simply uh, seems to have lost their enthusiasm for it. The public, I think, and I should add, this has been bipartisan to some extent. 
Um, you know, many of the many many people of both parties opposed the Syria intervention. It wasn't just Democrats, of course. Many Republicans opposed it for purely partisan reasons. Um, you know, it was a Democratic president, and of course, the Republicans did want to embarrass Obama. There's no doubt about that. At the same time, it's clear that a lot of Republicans generally have become very critical of intervention and very skeptical of the whole idea of intervention. And that was made very, very apparent, I think, in the debate on Syria. Um, you know, there's a recognition of the very considerable damage that overspending on the military has done to the economy. Uh, that, um, you know, an economic estimate by uh, um, George Stiglitz at Columbia and Linda Bilmes at Harvard estimated the long-term cost of the interventions in, in um, Afghanistan and Iraq are going to be 4 to $6 trillion. Um, uh, that's probably already significantly impacted the standard of living in the country and will continue to impact it for a long time to come. And I think the public is beginning to become aware of these facts. And, um, you know, I think also when the president said that this is a small-scale intervention, the public didn't believe him and shouldn't have believed him because interventions always spiral. Um, you know, the way it works is this. Let us say we fired the Tomahawk missiles at the Assad regime and it had no impact on the on the war. And the Assad regime continued to commit atrocities, which was likely. Well, people would say the U.S. has no credibility. To maintain credibility, the U.S. will have to do another attack and another and another and another and another. Uh, that's the way these things work. That's how uh, the war played out in Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, that's how it, the intervention in uh, Somalia played out in 92-93. That's how Vietnam played out. Uh, was that a small-scale intervention led to a realization that we'd committed our credibility, we, we, we'd committed ourselves and our credibility was at stake, and thereby we had intervened at a higher and higher level and constantly escalate. The public, I think, recognized this, and I think that was another reason they were unwilling to go along with the intervention in Syria that the president proposed. What do you say to people who say then, well, if you're against intervention in Syria, then you support the Assad regime? Well, I mean, this is obviously not true. Um, you know, one can condemn the Assad regime and should condemn the Assad regime for its considerable atrocities, many of which are quite real. Um, at the same time, one has to recognize that both sides have committed atrocities. And that's very typical in these types of civil wars, by the way. People like to find good guys and bad guys. But usually these types of humanitarian emergencies tend to be ethnic and religious conflicts. They certainly have become that in Syria. I don't think it began that way. But it certainly has become that. It's become something of a sectarian war among, um, you know, the Alawite Shia group, which is dominant, the Sunni group, and the Kurds, basically. And um, ethnic conflicts um, rarely have good guys. Um, typically, both sides commit atrocities. Both sides commit ethnic cleansing. Um, and uh, that certainly has been happening in Syria. And, um, you know, the rebels have not acquit been acquitting themselves in a particularly... Um, you know, morally uh, positive way. Um, and again, of course, that doesn't justify what the government is doing. Of course, it doesn't justify the Assad regime. Uh, but at the same time, one has to realize that in backing the rebels, America, would, too, would become complicit in many of the tro atrocities that they commit. And again, the intervention could very well and very likely would have the same impact it had in Libya and in Kosovo and many other places. It could very well make the situation worse. Let us not forget, by the way, that the Iraq War and to some extent the Afghanistan War was in part justified on humanitarian grounds. Uh, many intellectuals who supported, um, later supported humanitarian intervention in places like Libya and Syria uh, supported the Iraq War and supported Afghanistan, including many that I think that people would be surprised by. Um, well, Juan Cole, for example, uh, who's thought of as being somebody who was very much against the Iraq War, that's not really true. When the war began, he was very positive on it and openly endorsed it. 
and he endorsed it on humanitarian grounds. And the humanitarian grounds were simple, that uh, the Ba'athist regime, uh, the regime of Saddam Hussein, was an evil regime. It committed many horrible atrocities. That was all true, by the way. Um, and thereby were morally committed to overthrow it to help the Iraqi people. Well, we did overthrow the Saddam, regi- regi- Saddam Hussein regime, and the, disa- the effects were disastrous. All right? um, the humanitarian crisis became much worse. The death rate increased. The number of people who died since the U.S. invasion uh, is very likely higher than many of most who died who under Saddam Hussein. And, um, you know, we should not forget that as bad as things may be in some of these countries, you can always make them worse. It's always possible to make the situation worse. And intervening often has that effect um, in very unpredictable ways. Um, and the civil war, of course, in Iraq is far from over. We've seen an uptick recently in sectarian violence there. Um, and who knows when it will end? And all of that was made possible because we overthrew the Saddam Hussein regime. Had we not overthrown the regime, m- many of those lives probably would have been saved and never would have been killed. And you know that's our responsibility. It's also our responsibility, or it's at least the responsibility of those who supported the war, that we've wasted such vast amounts of money on that war, uh, money that we will not be able to recover and that we will not be able to spend on more genuinely humanitarian activities. A factor that I find also disturbing about humanitarian intervention is that it's very unaccountable and that it's very easy uh, for intellectuals and policymakers to sit at their desks and to... um, use very moralistic rhetoric and to advocate for war. But what do you do if you do that and the war goes badly? Uh, What accountability do you have? The answer is you have no accountability at all. A very striking feature, for example, of the Iraq war is hardly anyone or very few people who endorsed the war have even apologized uh, for their advocacy of war. Um, And those who have apologized, most of them have been half-hearted and would appear to be opportunistic, as, for example, politicians um, who after the fact have um, um, expressed some regret for the for um, the intervention. Uh, Hillary Clinton, for example, John Edwards, when I've heard their expressions of regret, it sounded self-serving to me at least. And most people who endorsed the war haven't even done that. Um, one rare exception, which I like to point to, ironically, is somebody you would not expect, which is a congressman from North Carolina named Walter Jones. Walter Jones is ironically a conservative Republican he was a very big, enthusiastic supporter of the war, and he's probably well remembered for one specific detail, which is he was the one who invented the idea of freedom fries and freedom toast. Uh, many listeners may recall the idiotic um, decision to uh, change the name of French fries and freedom fries to freedom, uh, excuse me, French fries and um, French toast to freedom fries and freedom toast in um, you know reaction to the French resistance to the war. Um, that was done by Walter Jones. Uh, Walter Jones has since then expressed very deep regret in endorsing the war and did it in what seems like a very heartfelt way. And he said things like, um, you know, this is paraphrasing, but uh, uh, he said things like, I will regret the day I die that I supported this war. And that's that sounds sincere to me. Um, he's virtually the only one I've heard say something like that, express what seems like genuine and heartfelt regret of having endorsed the war. And again, this lack of accountability is is very deeply disturbing to me. Samantha Power was one of the major advocates of um, uh, the intervention in Libya. And what will she say now, basically, that the Libyan intervention basically has gone very badly and that the majority of Libyan, Libyan people don't even endorse it in retrospect? 
The answer is she said nothing, and she simply wants to go on to the next intervention in Syria. Had that been successful and gone successful in terms of we had actually launched the Tomahawk missiles, and if it actually in the end made things worse, she probably would have said nothing and just found a new intervention for her to occupy herself. Are there potential hotspots that we should keep our eyes on uh, aside from Syria? Well, um, you know, throughout the world, there are always potential hotspots. There are always places where the humanitarian disasters, uh, large portions of Africa, uh, are in disastrous shape. Uh, the Congo, uh, the former Zaire Congo, um, has, ha has had a disastrous civil war since 1997 with possibly the highest casualties of any war since 1945. Um, and so there are always new potential areas that the press can arbitrarily focus on and can insist that because of this humanitarian emergency, we need to have humanitarian intervention, that we can't do nothing, and so on and so forth. Well, recently, for example, uh, there was another um, uprising in Central African Republic. People arbitrarily, and I think this is very arbitrary, used the word genocide or near genocide with very little evidence, I might add, and France sent in troops. Now, France has a long history of sending in troops into Africa. France has had many interventions. And up until the 1990s, they always were presented, even by French officials, as cynical acts designed to advance France's influence in Africa for strategic and economic purposes. Um, now, basically, they can do exactly the same thing, but they can justify it with humanitarian rhetoric. Um, I think many of those people who see the French troops going to the Central African Republic and assume they must be there to help the people of the Central African Republic forget this long history of very cynical French interventions in the region and how humanitarian intervention can serve basically to enable these types of interventions and give them a new justification that they didn't have before. You're listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Shager. My guest today is David Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona. How does a layperson get the information that they need to be able to oppose humanitarian intervention, so-called humanitarian intervention? Some of these issues are hmm. so complex, and it can be really easy to um, hear something that, that makes you feel like you want to do something. How do you resist that? How do you learn um, more and educate yourself? There's no really good answer to that, Amanda. It's um, it, it undoubtedly does take a lot of time and effort, and most people don't have the time basically to put into that, and that's perfectly understandable. I think in general people need to ask themselves, um, you know, how credible a lot of these cases are for intervention and just look at – well, I think what they need to do is look at the past record, in particular look at what happened in Iraq which was presented to some degree as a humanitarian intervention with catastrophic results, catastrophic, catastrophic for everybody. And I think they need to ask themselves, uh, you know, could that happen again? Uh, and the answer is yes, it could easily happen again. Um, I, I think just looking at the past history of familiar events, such as Iraq or Afghanistan, would go a long way towards educating the public. And I think that's what happened recently. I think the public has been looking more carefully at those events, that these were supposed to be quick interventions done at low cost, and instead they've taken years and years. Uh, Afghanistan, basically, we're still there, and it's been well over a decade. Um, and, um, you know, I think the past history, I think, should do enough to educate the public, to give them skepticism. And above all, I think they should always listen very carefully when people say, we have to do something, we can't do nothing. Well, the answer should be why. Maybe doing nothing is the best outcome. Maybe that's the best thing we can do. We can't solve all problems. We should start from that assumption. But we can make them worse. 
And in many cases, the best thing to do is indeed nothing. But at the same time, there are things we could do with the money that can have much more positive results. For example, if we're serious about helping other people around the world, we would more fully fund things like disease eradication, which can be done at very low cost, at a tiny fraction of the cost of these interventions, um, can be done much more reliably without, with very little risk of really doing serious harm and can save vast numbers of lives. Um, yet these efforts are woefully underfunded. A very interesting thing of the debate on Syria was that it was emphasized how little it would cost. It would cost merely in the low hundreds of millions. Uh, one account, one analyst who was advocating for the intervention called this budgetary dust. It's mere budgetary dust. It's nothing. Hundreds of millions. Well, you know, if you're talking about disease eradication, say polio or malaria or schistosomiasis, um, or public health in the United States, hundreds of millions of dollars is not just budgetary dust. That's real money. And so perhaps rather than spending these hundreds of millions on an intervention in Syria uh, that very likely will make the situation worse, maybe just spend it on disease eradication. If we really seriously want to help people, there are much easier and cheaper ways of doing it than sending in the 82nd Airborne Division. And, you know, people find, I think, um, the idea of a kind of moral military crusade a very exciting idea. But maybe exciting isn't the main consideration we should have here. The main consideration is effectiveness. And I think the military is a very ineffective way of promoting humanitarianism. And again, that we should look at other ways of helping people if that really is our objective. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes on 91.3 KXCI Tucson. My guest today has been David Gibbs, professor of history at the University of Arizona. He has a book entitled First Do No Harm, Humanitarian Intervention and the Destruction of Yugoslavia. That book came out in 2009, but it seems to be a, a lens through which you're able to look at uh, a lot of conflict. Yes, it's been, it's been a lens for me as a way of um, looking critically at the whole issue of intervention since the end of the Cold War, uh, that what happened in Yugoslavia, whereby you had a situation that was bad and then intervention came and made it worse, um, I think that's that's something that's been repeated again and again since since, since the Yugoslav Wars, um, and um, so yes, it's been a very useful way of looking at the post Cold War world for me, um, and of um, looking at the tremendous wastage of resources uh, that's been 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 directed to these types of interventionist activities. Thank you. You're welcome.